We continue this morning our study on the doctrine of the church. We've looked at several different aspects over the last several weeks, including the nature of the church. What are we about? Who are we? What are we doing? We're together. We've talked about the value of church membership, the need for church discipline, roles of Christ in his church, especially how he delegates his authority and his influence in the church in this present age. Today we'll look at the Lord's plan for pastors. As we looked last time how God, the Lord Jesus, exercises his dominion over the local church. We looked at the ideas that his influence, his authority is delegated through the promise, which is to say the new covenant contained in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit indwelling those who are his. So God delegates his authority through the promise, the new covenant that we have as his uh, promised inheritance for those who believe in him. Also, we looked at how God exercises his authority through the people, the people of God, and how we all have a role to play in the church. Each one has a mandate for service and of growth and of encouragement and all these things we've looked at. A third aspect, of course, is pastors. The Lord Jesus exercises his authority through pastors. Now, there are uh, different reasons why we would study what we might call the church government or the way that the church is ordered. And while it may appear to be a, a rather uninteresting topic, yet studying church government helps us to clarify misunderstandings that we may have regarding the role of pastors, elders, overseers. What are these different terms? Where do deacons fit in? How are decisions made in the church? How is the care of the church to be administered and so forth. Also, studying church government helps us to recognize God's provision for his church. This is what God intends for us as his congregation to order ourselves in this regard. Studying church government also helps us to honor Christ as head of the church, not just a figurehead, but a practical head, one who is very much present in our meetings, whether corporate meetings or in the leadership meetings, and definitely wants to be uh, to have first place, the preeminent place in all these things. Church government affirms the priesthood of believers, that each one has a role to play before the Lord, representing God to man and man to God, not in the, in the ultimate mediatorial work of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, and yet we all have that opportunity to teach the scriptures, to judge doctrinal matters, to um, intercede on behalf of other people, and so the priesthood of believers is important in relation to church government. Studying church government also helps to promote a well-rounded leadership where we are practicing all the different emphases that the Lord has for his church, particularly for the elders or the leaders of the church, and why that is important so that we're not governed simply by one person or one uh, set of character traits or one uh, path or, or habit of teaching model, but that we have a well-rounded or comprehensive uh, treatment and provision for uh, leadership. Also, church government helps to provide for mutual accountability. Again, to avoid the one-man show or the, the, the dynamic, strong dynamic leader model. Uh, the church has a strong dynamic leader. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to, as pastors, stand under him and advance him and have the different strengths and weaknesses of each man in the leadership uh, board to uh, help the strengths and weaknesses of other people, where one is strong, another may be weak, and so we can benefit from each other. We can also have that uh, measure of transparency 
one with another, where we are working, thinking, doing, praying, deciding things in the open before other men who are seeking the same things. So mutual, account mutual accountability is another uh, needed aspect of why we study church government. A last idea would be the promoting, of, uh, promoting the development of new leaders. The church needs new leaders. Uh, as, as one leader comes and goes, we need more to come in to care for this local church, but also have the idea of sending out trained, qualified men to lead in other churches or to establish churches or to help in training of other men to, to uh, sh shepherd the church of God. And so the development of new leaders is a very practical uh, result of studying and, and uh, practicing these principles of church government. There are three different terms, and I've mentioned each of them uh, already, I believe, maybe not all three, but and that is to say, what are, what are these leaders called in Scripture? Perhaps the predominant term in the New Testament as we see it, and even throughout the Old Testament in a little different context, as we'll see, is the term elder. Elder, or eldership, or um, in some respects, older men, those who are uh, uh, advanced in years, not not elderly in that sense, but elders to have a, a, a stable, mature mindset, character, proven um, conduct that has been observed through decades of service and hopefully uh, decades of service in Christ. Uh, again, not that we would establish new converts, even though advanced, they, they may be advanced in age, again, not terribly old, but, but to have those who are mature in Christ that would have the um, eldering or the, the dignified position for the church. We see this term elder used in a lot of respects, again in the Old Testament, uh, speaking just of civic leaders or religious leaders, um, those who are elders of a city, those who are the ones who you know people gather together with and they present cases you know, for judgment and decision and so forth, and so elders would be those who would help in that regard. Also, when we come into the New Testament, we see that the council of elders, called the Sanhedrin, is that which was the highest uh, Jewish council or Jewish uh, religious organization, which had some quasi-political um, uh, rule or, or influence as well, but primarily the, the religious council. And so we see elders referred to, as Jesus talked about, being uh, taken by the chief priests and the elders and the uh, Jewish leaders there. Uh, and then, of course, crucified, not you know without God's predetermined will and sacrificing his son for our sake to pay the penalty for our sin for those who believe in him. And so we see God's plan being accomplished even through that. Very generically, elder can just mean an older man, somebody in the first century, perhaps in, the, in his 50s, maybe 60-year-old range. And we see, for example, Zechariah was referred to as a, an old man, and uh, also in Titus 2, verse 2, older men are to be dignified and all that kind of thing. A similar word is used to describe older women same, in that same passage of Titus 2 and verse 3. But here, when we're talking about elders or eldership, we're talking about those who are official recognized leaders among the church. And that word, again, is used so many different times as we will look at as we go along in some key scriptures here in just a moment. A second term used, I don't know, perhaps a second most often in relation to church leaders is that word overseer, or as we have it in our language now, bishop, uh, kind of a, a 
slang term, I suppose, from uh, the Latin word, well, it's a Greek word, but then into Latin, episkopos, bishop. And so we see that, that word very much uh, similarly used. Overseer emphasizes the administrative oversight. So somebody who is uh, being an administrator, one who is a guardian even, you know, watching over uh, the people. We see this term used uh, in, a, in a verbal form and in a noun form, referring to the, um, the, the, the emphasis on the different administrative functions of these leaders. And again, we'll look at some passages here. But another term used, and I guess I'm mistaken, overseer probably isn't the most predominant or second most predominant term. Pastor is the second most predominant, but not so much in the noun form, that is to say, the pastors. But the verb form, which is to say shepherd, they should shepherd or tend the flock of God. And so we'll look at some of the implications of that. This term pastor uh, really emphasizes, as I mentioned earlier, the priesthood of the believer, that we all have a function, a role to play in the life of the church. But then we want to recognize also the sheephood of believers, that we require a shepherd. We need help along the path. We need help to find water, pasture. Genesis uh, 29 speaks about that need for the sheep to, to be watered and cared for in that regard. Of course, Psalm 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd and identifies what does he provide for us. He provides us food and he provides us safe drinking water and protection from enemies and, and all these things. So shepherds provide for sheep that those needed services. Of course, the protection I mentioned, the uh, rescue operations, as Jesus even referenced in uh, Matthew 18 and other passages as well, about a shepherd who had all these sheep and one got lost or wandered away. And so the shepherd goes out and finds and rescues these who are lost or turned aside. We find how the shepherds are uh, provide protection from predators, uh, you know, the ravenous wolves that would come in, bears, and all kind of nasty creatures that would come to destroy the flock. Again, that term pastor is used mostly in relation or in, in terms of a verbal form, a, a shepherding work. Uh, and yet we also see it, uh, one place at least, in relation to church leaders, and we'll look at that in a moment. It is used a lot of times of the Lord Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the shepherd, when he says, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered in Matthew 26 and verse 31. And so we see him refer to himself that way. Of course, John 10, big uh, passage where he talks about the, himself as the good shepherd and all the things that he does as a shepherd. We can see uh, negatively, the example in um, Ezekiel, I believe it is, yeah, Ezekiel 34, where uh, speaking negatively of false or fake or nasty, selfish shepherds and how disastrous they are in the life of the of the flock. Well, church leaders are not to be that way. They are to be uh, careful pastors of the flock and serving the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So elder, pastor, overseer, or elder in the order that I've said it, elder, overseer, and pastor. The term elder, we can say, emphasizes the character of the man that he is a mature, godly, uh, God-fearing man, one who has a proven track record of, of faithfulness to the Lord. The term overseer may emphasize his work, the, the administrative oversight, the care, the guarding that he provides for the church. And then pastor or shepherd would 
perhaps uh, emphasize the manner or the mode or the mindset of uh, how he goes about this work. It's not, as Jesus says, it's not a heavy-handedness. It's not something that is ruling over those allotted to the charge of these elders, but one who is so kind and generous, gentle, as Jesus has described, you know, leading the uh, nursing ewes and, and holding the little babes in his arms, you know, close to his bosom. It's that kind of attitude that we want to see. So we see throughout Scripture, and I'll, I'll hopefully defend that as we go along, that these terms are used interchangeably. Anywhere you see elder, you could just as well see overseer or shepherd and vice versa, or in all these different ways. These terms are uh, different, emphasize different aspects of the group of godly men who provide the care for the congregation, a local church, a local church congregation, and they can be used interchangeably. And so even you know, describing the character, work, and manner uh, of, of these men, I mean, it, it is speaking of the same, same people. And we see that, that God is very specific uh, about the work of pastors, definitely, but even more so the qualifications, so that we see the character elements, rather, are, are so important to consider in relation to choosing and appointing and establishing and recognizing and submitting to and, and listening to these, these godly men. Well, let's look at a series of scriptures in the New Testament, principally, that develop the idea, the practice, and the character of these men in the life of the church. These texts are presented in, in a roughly chronological order, beginning from uh, just shortly after Pentecost, the birth of the church, to the end of the New Testament era, anyhow. And we can see how elders are uh, recognized throughout this, this uh, time. First passage here is in Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. This is the congregation, big congregation in Jerusalem. Those Of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And it goes on and describes the need that they had. There, were, uh, there was a lot of uh, opposition, a lot of uh, difficulty with people living even. And so they said, we're going to share uh, our stuff. Whatever resources we have, we're going to share. And verse 32 says, everything was held in common, and they would share. Verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And so we see that there was great care in the congregation for one another, caring very practically for the needs. They would sell their property and lay the proceeds, so the money that would was gathered as a result of the the sale of the property, whether it was land or, or you know, tangible goods or whichever, and then that money was laid at the apostles' feet, and then that money was distributed by the apostles. We see how that is practiced in in Acts six, of course, very familiar passage when the the distribution of that uh, food or that money, perhaps, it's, it's somewhat nondescript as to what is being served here in this in this uh, context. But there was some grumbling going on. Verse 1 here says uh, the disciples were multiplying in numbers. So lots and lots. I mean, it started with 3,000 people. Now they have many, many more. There was grumbling from the Hellenists, so the Greek-speaking Jews, against the Hebrew-speaking Jews, or the natives in the land, because there the Hellenist widows, Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving, daily serving whether, you know, making changing that money into food, buying food and then distributing the food, or maybe even distributing money directly to people. Uh, that word serving uh, um, here, and then just a little bit down here, where does he say? Verse uh, uh, 
the verse 2 says it's not good for us to uh, neglect the word of God to serve tables. That word tables can refer to, you know, tables to eat at, to share food at. Luke 16 verse 21 talks about that. Or it can also refer to um, banking tables, uh, money or, or uh, money tables. And the, for example, Luke 19 verse 23 speaks of it in that regard. So however they did it, somehow uh, benefits were distributed hopefully impartially, but there's a challenge or a uh, charge that now we're Hellenists are being overlooked. So what happens? The apostles met together and said it's not pleasing. Verse 2 says it's not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, you brothers select from among you seven men of good reputation that we may put in charge of this need, it says. And so full of the spirit and of wisdom, of course. And then verse 4 says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word, the ministry of the word here, it says. And so they chose these these fellows, seven men, Stephen, of whom we see in the next chapter, chapter 6 of Acts, that he preaches and then he is killed, first Christian martyr. Uh, Philip, the second one listed here, is almost immediately afterwards, after the persecution really arises through Saul and others, that he goes down to a desert road near Gaza, on the way to Gaza, talks to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then after that conversation, that salvation, that wonderful transformation of, of that man of Ethiopia, now uh, Philip is taken up to Caesarea, or, or journeys up to Caesarea and settles up there. So the question is, wait a minute, I, I thought they had a job to do there in Jerusalem. What happened? And the other guys listed here in verse 5, that's the only time we see their names, Prochorus, Nicanor, and the others. And so we don't know what happened to them after that fact. The point I'm making with all this is that the the role of the apostles in that early church was a very practical, very tangible uh, leadership role, even even uh, distributing food or, or money, however the case may be. When we go a little bit farther into Acts, we see very similar needs. I mean, it's not like people, things changed for people. It got harder and harder for Christians to be Christians in that age and that that city, especially Jerusalem. So in Acts 11, we see that uh, some uh, Acts 11 verse 27, in those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, Antioch of Syria, so up northern, northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, a very, very powerful, uh, predominant church that, that was established there. One of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine over all the world, and this did take place during the reign of Claudius. And so, verse 29, very similar to what we saw in Acts 4, as any of the disciples had means... You know, property and so forth, they determined, each of them determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the, no, not to the apostles, to the elders, it says there in verse four, verse 30. And so there was some change. This is the first time we see that term elder being used, again, referencing the church in Jerusalem, especially, and that now the money that had been going to the apostles for distribution, and then in Acts 6 was delegated to the seven, we can call them perhaps, uh, you know, uh, Stephen and Philip and the others, now is being handed over to the elders for that similar distribution. And so somehow in the course of that, those uh, months or years that the establishment of elders recognized uh, caretakers, shepherds again, of the, of the congregation are are brought forth and recognized and even to receive money, which is a, uh, a something that requires faithfulness and, and a good stewardship there. A little bit later, after the first missionary journey, or at the close of the missionary journey, first missionary journey of Saul and Barnabas, 
we see how they made a very particular effort and uh, campaign to establish elders in these different cities. Acts 14 and verse 21 speaks about the conclusion of that first journey. And uh, verse 21 says, They had proclaimed the gospel to that city, the Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and others there in, the, in Asia Minor, and had made many disciples. And then they returned to Lystra and Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, and they strengthened the souls, encouraged them to continue the faith. And, and uh, verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, so that was one of their concluding tasks. They established the church, they shared the gospel, of course, but now it's time to establish elders or appoint elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There is that work of appointing elders for them. And notice how it says in verse 23, in every church, each church, or how do we say, each city had a church. And we can see that, for example, when Paul writes to Titus, Titus 1 and verse 5, he says, establish uh, elders in each city, just as I directed you. Each city had its own church. And we can see that even how Paul referenced. He wrote to the church in Rome or the church in Ephesus or the church in Colossae. Now, he wrote to the churches of Galatia, a series or a collection of churches there. But here we see the emphasis on each church. Titus 1 verse 5, each city had a at a, a single church, you know, until splits and divisions and all these things happened, unfortunately, uh, in the course of time. But we see that eldership is appropriate for each church, not elders over the whole area. You know, Iconium and Lystra Derby are pretty similar, pretty close together um, geographically, and yet the churches are distinct, uh, these local bodies, these local assemblies. And each one, each church that is, required elders, it says, having appointed for them elders for them in every church. So we see the principle that there are multiple of these men serving in this fashion. A similar uh, early reference to eldership is in James chapter 5, verse 14, uh, of course, verse 13 says, If any is anyone among you suffering, must pray. If is anyone cheerful, he's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Well, what should you do? You must call for the elders of the church, and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and so forth. It talks about prayer. But again, it's the elders of the church that the, the sick one is to call and ask the elders to pray over that sick one, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The oil, of course, referencing the uh, consecration to the Lord, the hope, the trust, the confidence in the Lord. Uh, it's not that the oil has a... Um, could, I suppose, have a therapeutic uh, element to it. Oil does uh, is used to, to uh, nurse the wounds of the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and all that. And the good Samaritan came along and helped him and anointed him and bathed him in oil to, to tend to the wounds and so forth. So that could be what is referenced here as well. But the elders of the church are called. We see going back into Acts uh, about the same time, uh, AD 50, that the Jerusalem Council meets to discuss this issue of how do, what do we do with a bunch of these Gentile believers in the church and how, how do we understand their relationship to the law and the Moses and, and us and not cause offense for, for all these things. And so Acts 15 and into chapter 16 references that, but it, it speaks of the meeting of the apostles so people like Peter is there, Paul is there, James is there, not a capital A apostle. James, not 
not one of the twelve originally. Of course, James had, had died. The apostle James had died by this time. But here we have James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, half-brother you know, of Jude, who is somewhat recognized as a leader in the church in Jerusalem, probably recognized as an apostle, lowercase a apostle. And so he has some fashion of of authority in this congregation. At least he rises up and helps them to come to a decision, which they do. The apostles, the elders, and the whole church thought that this was how uh, the the decision ought to be. And so we see the relationship of uh, leadership, of authority, of decision-making, even judging doctrinal issues in this regard um, for the apostles and elders principally, and the whole church also. A little bit later, in uh, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he speaks uh, to the church at large, and he says, you ought to have this attitude toward your leaders. Now he introduces a not, a, not a, one of the primary terms, elder, pastor, overseer, but another term here in verse 12. He says, We ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So he's speaking to the whole church, and he says, You know or recognize or honor, and we'll see that in First Timothy uh, 5, about honoring those who work hard in this way. But he says, this this uh, this phrase, those who labor among you. That word labor is not, um, uh, as I've said, a namby-pamby or an easygoing kind of thing. It's something that is uh, striving after. It's something that's even toilsome, um, uh, burdensome, not in a negative way. We'll see that in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We don't want it to be a burden to them. But in terms of the, the effort that these men are presenting on behalf of the church, it is laborious to them. It is something that they strive at. They are, are toiling to, for the service of the church. And notice it says, those who labor among you are really attaching or approximatizing, if that's the proper term, of the proper use of the term, uh, the elders with a local congregation. In other words, elders aren't over a, a bunch of churches. They're over a local church and uh, have very tight responsibilities for that local congregation. So those who labor among you, it says here in verse 12, but then those who lead you in the Lord. That word lead is really the idea of somebody who stands before or stands in front of, not so much in in uh, prestige or importance necessarily of the congregation, but those who, like a shepherd, would be one who walks before, walks in front of the sheep, leading them forward. Uh, leading them forward to follow the shepherd's example. Again, kind of mixing metaphors there, shepherd and sheep and leader and those who follow. But it's, it's that idea. I guess not so much a prestigious thing that, that you need to you know, bow down and, and worship these fellows or uh, somehow think you are less than because they're the leaders and you need to follow. But to, to recognize them, to recognize them, to know these men uh, and that you regard them, verse 13, regard them very highly in love. Not, again, to idolize them or, or put them on a pedestal, but to appreciate them in love because of their work. And so he uses those two terms, especially those who labor, those who lead and admonish you. They speak the truth. They correct you. They confront you. They uh, bring challenges. They say, you need to grow in this area according to the scriptures, not based on my opinion or whatever, but based on what God says. And so those are important aspects, important works of these elders, uh, pastors, overseers. 
We see an example of this perhaps in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 16 and 17, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church saying, hey, uh, recognize, you know the household of Stephanus, and that, verse 16, that you be in subjection to such men. You, You obey them, you submit to them, and everyone to everyone who helps in the work and labors. This word labors is what we saw back in First Thessalonians 5, 12, those who labor among you and those who toil among you. And he emphasizes the the important work of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Verse 18 says, recognize, therefore recognize such men. Honor them, uh, not over over much, but uh, recognize them as as the gifts of God for the care and uh, leadership, teaching, feeding of the local congregation. Fantastic passage, which I'd love to unpack, and perhaps we'll do it later. Acts 20, verses 17 through 35, Paul is speaking to the elders from the church at Ephesus, the church where he had spent three years ministering, the longest he had served any local church. Now, he had some some journeys away uh, during those times and, and even evangelized the whole of Asia. In fact, he can say all Asia has heard the gospel through his time there in, in Ephesus. Possibly also that's when the church at Colossae was founded and because it's only 100 miles or so from, from uh, Ephesus. In any event, he is there. He has called. Uh, this is at the end of his third missionary journey. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for the... Uh, festival, and he is passing near, not to, but nearby Ephesus, and, and verse 17, uh, from Miletus, a city on the coast just a little bit south of Ephesus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So these are the the group of godly men who provide the care, the oversight, management of the church in Ephesus. These are called elders here in verse 17. Jump down to verse 28, we see skipping over so much of what Paul says, but verse 28 says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Not all the flock, you know, generally all over the world, but all the flock in Ephesus, all the Christians that are in your church there in Ephesus, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Oh, wait a minute, I thought they were elders. Verse 17, well, elders and overseers, again, referring to the same group of godly men who provide care for the church, but here he emphasizes the overseership, the administration, or even the watch care guarding aspect. He says, um, you watch out, be on your guard, watch yourselves, and all the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here we see that verbal form, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So you elders... You're also overseers, and you're called to shepherd or care for, feed and lead the local church there, which God uh, has purchased with his own blood. Now there, as an aside, God is speaking, well, Paul is speaking of God, who has purchased the church, and again, not just the church in Ephesus, as if somehow the church in Colossae wasn't a recipient of this purchase. No, that's all. he goes from a local church mindset to a universal church that everybody who is in Christ has been purchased by his blood. Now, who is who's he talking about here? Verse 28. He purchased with his own blood. Well, he was talking about God, the Father. The Father purchased with his own blood, but God the Father did not die. God the Father is a spirit. And yet we see God the Son, who did lay down his life for the church, who did purchase with his own blood. He did die in the, in, as a substitute for those who put their faith in him. Christ died. He purchased the church. 
Again, we see that Christ is God, the Son of God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. Much more could be said about this. One thing, uh, just as a as an aside, verse 29 and 30, Paul says, Why should you watch out? Why should you be on guard for yourselves and for the flock? Because I know, verse 29 says, After my departure, after he leaves the area, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So savage wolves is the idea of false teachers who will come in and and, and speak things that, that are wicked, that are contrary to scriptures. But the worst thing here, verse 30 says, from among your, your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So from this group of godly men, these elders from Ephesus that Paul has been with, many of them for three years, and spoken to, knows them personally, knows their houses, knows their family, and families, and he says, I know from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things. And you'd think that that would underscore and, and motivate them to do that, which Paul had said, watch out, be on guard for yourselves. And he says, verse 31, be watchful. And yet, you know, so many things were going on, a lot of emotion, heightened emotions, and, and saying farewell to Paul, and even the expectation that Paul had of being arrested and, and uh, mistreated when he goes back to Jerusalem. So all these things are on their minds. But one of the sad things, in, in my perspective anyway, when you look down at the end of this chapter, Acts 20, that they were saying goodbye to Paul and so forth. And verse 37 says they began to weep aloud and falling on Paul's neck. They were kissing him. But this, verse 38 says, being in agony, especially over the word which he'd spoken, that they wouldn't see his face again. Well, okay, I can appreciate that, that Paul was so helpful and perhaps they wished that Paul would be there to help them in the guarding work, but that's not Paul's work. Paul's an apostle. He is called to different things. He has called these elders to serve the local church, to be faithful in the administration of the truth and, and caring and watching out for each other. And so they're, they're overwhelmed perhaps with that sentimentality, uh, a sense of loss already. They won't see Paul anymore when they should have been, in my perspective, and I don't want to beat them up too badly, but they should have been very much concerned for the influence of false teachers coming in to afflict the congregation and certain among themselves going to rise up and speak perverse things, things that ought not be said or done in the congregation. And so they ought to have that attitude, perhaps, that the disciples had at the Last Supper with Jesus, when he says, one of you will betray me, will betray me, betray me, excuse me. And, of course, they asked, was it me? Am I the one? And they were looking to themselves. And I guess that's one time when the disciples didn't turn on each other and start accusing each other. Well, you're the one. You're obviously the one. No, they, they evaluated themselves. They were very careful to consider the warning that Jesus was offering to them. In any event, Acts 20, this message that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders is, has so many different powerful truths that, that are spoken here. We'll have to come back at another time and look more carefully at these things. A little bit later, again, as part of Paul's return to Jerusalem, and the, the festival that he was coming to, Jewish festival, we see an interaction, Acts 21, beginning at verse 17, when Paul presents himself to James, the, um, uh, a leader, recognized leader in the church in Jerusalem, as well as the elders, and they advise him to do something in relation to paying of a vow and proving that Paul means no ill will toward uh, Jews and even the temple service there in Jerusalem. Of course, that whole situation ends up with Paul's arrest and imprisonment and eventual journey into Rome and being 
under arrest, you know, in prison, under custody for about five years, all told. Two years in Caesarea on the sea, and then an overwinter journey to Rome, and then two years in a house arrest in Rome. In any event, the uh, elders were the ones who didn't get him into trouble. and They just said, look, here's something you could do to prove your your compassion, your concern, your sensitivity to Jewish thought and practice, and, and that's what they did. Emphasizing in the authority, the influence, the care, the watchfulness, the shepherding role of the elders in the city of Jerusalem. A little bit later, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, again from Rome, uh, he mentions this one time where the noun form, pastor, is used in relation to church leaders. That's Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers, emphasizing uh, different aspects, perhaps, of the group of godly men who are uh, providing this shepherding work, this this uh, leading leadership kind of work, but also the teaching or uh, feeding work, so feeding and leading, or leading and feeding in that order, as we, as I just was saying, uh, the, emphasizes the different aspects of these elders, pastors, overseers, to lead the flock and to feed the flock. And there are a lot of other things that would perhaps be summarized uh, under those two headings of feeding and leading. When we can look more at, at what he says in Ephesians 4, but looking at Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul identifies uh, or directs his greetings, rather, to uh, verse 1 says, All the saints in Christ Jesus were in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So here he uses that term overseers to, again, refer to the the elders, pastors, overseers, those who provide leadership in the church. And then he introduces a second category, that is deacons. And we'll have to look at deacon work a little bit later. We see though that two term, two two different offices in the church recognize Overseer, again, is that which emphasizes the leadership, administrative quality. Deacons really emphasizes a service or um, a helper to the deacons, helper to the church at large, but especially as agents of the eldership to accomplish certain things. And they can be uh, any number of things in our modern age as we see the the uh, needs of, of, serving, of serving a congregation. Of course, the early church did not have designated church buildings where they met. So, whereas deacons in our present day usually are, uh, you know, pertain to facilities, management, and maintenance, and so forth, uh, it's not wrong for them to do that, but uh, there are other tasks that can be assigned to deacons as well. One thing to note, though, is that leadership or decision-making or that kind of uh, authority doesn't seem to be attached to the deacons at all. In other words, deacons aren't the leaders in the church, they are the servants, the recognized servants for particular tasks in the church, whereas leadership, the authority, the need or the call for the church at large to honor, submit, respect, listen to, be persuaded persuaded by uh, these men is pertaining to the elders, not the deacons. Just make that point that uh, we see these two offices, overseers and deacons, but it's the overseers who are the leaders, recognized leaders in the church. First Timothy 3, which we'll unpack carefully uh, later when we evaluate the qualifications of elders. Uh, first Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and First Peter 5, 1 through 4, that we'll look at here in just a moment, uh, all emphasize 
some aspect of the work, but more, you know, what, what do these elders do? But more specifically, what kind of men are they? What are some qualifications or characteristics that ought to be true of them? And so he says, if any man aspires or desires or wants to serve in this office of overseer, he desires a good thing, a good work. And then he goes on and describes these qualifications. An overseer then. Notice how he emphasizes that term of administrator. He does, down in verse 5, well, verse 4, he uses that word which we saw back in First Thessalonians 5.12, those who lead you in the Lord. And so that leadership, the one who stands before, we see that in verses 4 and 5, leading, you know, standing before, uh, providing, guiding his own household well, having his children submission to all dignity. And verse 5 says, but if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? We see the, the need for leadership, uh, leadership in the home especially, proven leadership in the home, because how the man directs, shepherds his own household will carry over into how does this guy lead, care for, provide uh, uh, for the church at large, the church of God here in verse 5. And so leadership, again, is a, a key element of the work of elders. We see that evidenced a little bit later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, the elders who lead well. Now, wait a minute, he was talking about overseers, but now he's talking about elders, again, because these terms can be used interchangeably as he emphasizes different characteristics or different elements of, of these men's work. But here he says, the elders who lead well, or, uh, yes, the same idea of leading, caring, guiding, uh, influencing, directing, standing before the congregation. Those who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, it's not just honor like, you know, accolades and claps and and uh, standing ovations, not that that ever happens much in, the, in church settings, but uh, it's not just that. Now, it includes that, definitely, but he is talking about money, you know, giving money, double honor, double portion to those who rule or lead well, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching here in verse 17. And so those, all the elders who are leading well, caring for the church well, are considered worthy, but especially those whose primary occupation, their toilsome labor, is at preaching the word and teaching. So feeding the congregation with the truths, truths from God's word and speaking on a regular basis in the congregation are those who ought to receive uh, the benefit of, of uh, financial uh, care for the congregation. And then goes on and talks about receiving or some scriptural basis. By the way, he says here in verse 18, you shall not muzzle the ox while threshing. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. And this other quotation, the labor is worthy of his wages, is from Luke's gospel. And so in both situations, or both quotations rather, introduced by the phrase, for the scripture says. Paul's regarding uh, Luke's gospel on the same uh, level as uh, the Pentateuch and the law of Moses. He says this is the scripture. And so we really see the development of scripture and the recognition that God is uh, revealing himself through the gospels, through uh, the writings of the apostles and so forth in the New Testament era. goes on and describes some other relationships or responsibilities to the elders as it goes on, and, and we'll have to look at that another time as well. But the elders here he's talking about and the work that they have of, of leading, but also feeding the congregation. Titus 1, 5-9, I mentioned, has another telling of, 
uh, qualifications of elders. I mentioned it also earlier in relation to the importance of elders in each church. Here, as I referenced, he Paul speaks to Titus and says, you appoint elders in every city, which again, each city had its own church, and so the the church in a city was to have a a plurality, a, a measure of godly men who are over uh, the congregation, serving, providing for the congregation, and so forth. And so he refers to them as, el- as elders here in verse 5. Then a little bit down in verse 7, he says, the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. So we see elders and overseers, those terms used. And then another term here introduced, a steward which again under, underscores the importance that the church does not belong to the pastors. A lot of times, for shorthand's sake, we say, oh, that church is pastored by, or, or that's so-and-so's church. Well, I, you know, we understand what we're saying, but ultimately we ought to say that's Christ's church pastored by so-and-so, or a group of so-and-sos. You know, pastors, you know, he, these are a bunch of godly men. I don't want to get over, overly picayunish about that kind of thing, but just to reference, remember, emphasize the fact this is Christ's church. We are under shepherds and we're stewards. God, this is God's church. He died for it. I didn't die for the church. It's his. And so we're going to manage it according to his rule, his word, his principles, his manner of and mode of uh, shepherding. But he has these three different terms, elders and overseers and stewards. And he speaks about different aspects in this context. Uh, Almost the last passage we'll look at. Just in, well, actually, yeah, in passing, 1 Peter uh, 2 and verse 25, we see the terms shepherd and overseer together. So we've seen overseer and elder together, but here we see overseer and, and uh, shepherd together. Of course, we saw that also back in Acts 20, 28. But here he, he's, Peter is speaking of the sheephood of believers. We were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, or shepherd and bishop of your souls. That's not the human pastors, that's Christ that he's speaking of there. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First Peter 5, uh, 1 through 5, speaks about this, the, the work of eldership and especially their mindset, the way that they should approach the flock. He says, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also the glory that's to be revealed. He says, look, I'm talking to you elders, but you here's what you should do. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing it or exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. So we see great emphasis emphasis here on the eldership, the pastors, the overseers, that they should do it serving the Lord, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, regardless of what you're paid. Uh, that word about honoring, you know, giving uh, the elders who lead well are worthy of double honor, well, that's the message to the church. Uh, in a lot of respects, we don't, pastors ought not focus on the 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 importance for them to receive money. Paul, when he talks about money, he's he's not saying that for himself. He's saying other people, uh, need, you, you need to pay your teachers for the service that they provide to you. And so he says the same thing here. Uh, pastors don't work for the money. They work for the joy of serving the Lord Jesus in this regard, caring for the church. And uh, hopefully the church would reciprocate by showing its thanksgiving in in uh, providing for material needs of the shepherds. But he says, you don't do it for uh, dishonest gain. That's not to say that these are 
they're um, hucksters or, or liars, deceivers, uh, teaching for for the money. No, you you teach for the purpose of of uh, being faithful to the message God has entrusted to you, the work that you desire to do. First Timothy three one. You do it eagerly, even if you don't get paid, and uh, you do it uh, in such a way that you are serving the Lord. Verse three says, "Not as lowering it over those allotted to you." being a, a cruel taskmaster, a tyrant, perhaps, even what might be justified as a benevolent dictator, one who is exercising God's authority in the congregation. No, do not lord it over those. Don't treat yourself or regard yourself or think of yourself as as the savior of the church or the, the leader or the anointed one that uh, the church can't touch. All You're just expecting... Uh, not worship necessarily, but you're expecting a lot of honor from the congregation. No, you don't do that. You do not lord it over those allotted to you, but you be examples to the flock. You prove yourself to as these different qualifications we'll look at later, not today, but another time, being gentle and kind and not pugnacious. You be an example to everybody. Don't be so proud and obnoxious about the authority that God has entrusted to you. The authority, what, what's this about? Well, Hebrews 13, and we'll, these, this is the last uh, several uh, scriptures we'll look at today. Hebrews 13, verse 7, talks about those, uh, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Here we see a, a separate term. This is not the leader the term that we saw back in 1 Thessalonians 5, those who lead you, or even in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 4 and 5, I think it was, uh, leading his household well. This is a different term, and it's used uh, several different times in this context. What do we have? In verse 7, talks about your, your, remember your leaders. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then at the end, verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. So each time that word leader is used, it's not the word same word we saw earlier. This is a different term, and it has the idea of uh, what we might refer to as influencers in the church, not in the, in the popsy kind of way, um, pop culture kind of way, but those who provide direction to hold an opinion, but not an opinion based on personal whatever. It's an opinion based on Scripture, and those who are trying to convince you of what is true. In other words, when it says, verse 17, obey your leaders, that is, and submit to them, um, yeah, obey your leaders and submit to them, has the idea of of you be persuaded by them, you be convinced by what they're saying, not based on their own ingenuity or, or imaginations, but based on what they're speaking to you from the scriptures. You listen to them. Remember your leaders. Remember those who are ordering you, governing you, providing direction for you. Uh, and you you obey you remember them obey them you surrender you submit to them that's the idea of yielding to them not ultimately to them of course we yield to the lord these are his representatives on earth and so we want to be influenced by them but we should be able to trust them knowing that they are holding fast the faithful word titus 1:9 uh, and apt to teach. Back in First Timothy, he, he says about that, they are apt to teach not their own opinion, not their own you know, hobby horses and uh, whatever, but Christ's opinion, the Word of God uh, spoken to them. Uh, when it says uh, back in verse 7, they have spoke, they, uh, these men, these leaders have uh, spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We don't want the church to become 
It says, looking at their conduct, but imitate their faith. Their faith is directed toward Christ. We don't want to take on the mannerisms of this pastor or that pastor. I mean, it can be helpful, but it can also be limiting and distracting. We want to imitate their faith, their direction toward Christ, and to recognize, whoa, they are uh, ambassadors of Christ, and they are, even as it says here in verse 20, referencing or... or, um, reflecting the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that great pastor. Or as I mentioned, maybe I didn't emphasize in in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, when the chief shepherd. That's the only time, by the way, that that, there's an adjective uh, before shepherd in the scripture. The chief shepherd, uh, the senior pastor, if you don't mind translating it that way. Jesus Christ is that senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd. Everybody else on earth is an under-shepherd, one who's under the authority of Christ. He is, as we saw here, the great shepherd of the sheep. We don't see other adjectives attached. In our day and age, we have you know, executive pastors, youth pastors, associate pastors, assistant pastors, pastor of discipleship, pastor of counseling, pastor of care, all these different things. And it can be helpful to reference them uh, or, or to designate their area of specialty in that regard. But principally and fundamentally, we need to emphasize, hey, are these people pastor qualified, elder qualified? Do they fulfill these different things? Do they think of themselves as pastors not of the whole church, maybe with a specific task or area of concern, but pastors of the whole church and have that mindset that, that I am speaking the word of God. I have a responsibility as Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews 13, 17, watching over the souls. So not just you know, discipleship or, or the budget or these different executive functions, but the souls of the people. And I know money and, and things are, are part of that caring for the people and providing for them and so forth, convincing them, you know, speaking the truth in this regard. But the mindset of pastors ought to be more than just something that is uh, specialized in that regard. Well, we've looked at so many different scriptures here in the New Testament. Many of them we have to come back and look at more carefully. They deserve closer attention. But we realize that these elders are uh, definitely to be honored, definitely to be recognized as, as the roles that they have in the church, but also to realize they're not the most important people in the congregation. In fact, you ought to have the mindset, I am the most important person in the church. Now, don't get, don't, let your head get all filled with that. I'm, what I mean is that you are the most important person, is the mindset you ought to bring, emphasizing you have not come to be served. You haven't come to the church meaning to be served. You have come to serve. You have an important function in the life of the church. In other words, it's not just, oh, well, the preacher, he's the most important. He's the one that, that he, he's going to be up there and doing all the things, and I, I just need to come and, and observe and passively participate and all this. No, have the mindset that I am here to serve, to use my gifts, my skills, my experience, my knowledge of the Word of God to minister to other people. And if you serve as an elder, a pastor overseer, fantastic. If you serve as a deacon, fantastic. If you don't, you have a service to play, you have a role to play, and the elders are those who want to help uh, you know, equip you for that work of service and uh, encourage you in that regard, and even when it needs to be, to admonish and, and to, to help in the very practical ways. But recognize your important work in the life of the church. Be thankful that God has provided his promise, uh, emphasizing or exercising his authority through the promise, the new covenant, 
you're part of his people. And so you're part of the provision of God for the life of the church, the advancement of the gospel to the nations. And you ought to be thankful also for those pastors, the shepherds, the the uh, overseers, elders, pastors, overseers who care for and lead the church. Well, much more can be said. I believe next time we will look at uh, more of the specific work. What do these elders do when they're together? And how do they do it? And then another time we'll look at the qualifications as we somewhat skipped over uh, uh, today. So thankful for God's word on this topic. Our Father in heaven, you're so good. Thank you for the work of the gospel in changing people's lives. We're grateful for the, the provision that Christ died for sinners. And he is the one who is the only Savior, God only wise. You have provided him as the one who takes away the sin of the world. We're grateful for the promise. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we're grateful for that. Thank you for the life of the church in this world. It's crazy mixed up generation, perverse generation. And yet your church has a specific role. And you promised fruitful ministry. Not everybody's going to be saved, but you have allotted certain ones to believe this gospel. Please help us to be faithful in sharing this word. Please raise up godly men who would provide this pastoral eldership or oversight on behalf of local churches. Hum- humble service uh, devoted to you most most uh, uh, primarily, but also devoted to a local congregation. Have that attitude and mindset to raise up men and women, boys and girls, that would love the Lord Jesus Christ and lay down their lives for him in very practical ways and perhaps in a martyrdom way as well, but help us to have a great desire for Christ to be honored and glorified in this age. We pray in his name. Amen.